think about, today we're going to talk about what, uh, the difference between uh, a selfish lover and a servant lover. And uh, if you um, saw, there's a disclaimer in the bulletin. You're going to, yep, all right. Um, so uh, th- that's why we have a full middle school program this week. And uh, if you want to bring your middle schooler in here and they can sit next to you during this, that'll be a good punishment. But... Uh, <laughs> Um, these are conversations that you should be having, but we wanted to give you the uh, authority to determine how you have those in your family. So, um, all of us, uh, to, like when we think about the best marriage, we think of two people who are servant-hearted people. We don't think of two people who are selfish, right? When you think, oh, you know, the very best marriages that I could possibly imagine would be too servant-minded people, not too selfish-minded people. The problem is, uh, selfishness is a core trait of being alive. <laughs> like, if you're alive, if you walked in here and you're doing the breathing thing today, then you struggle with selfishness. Alright? It's just kind of, it's not one of those things where, oh, some people are selfish and some people aren't. Um, we're all selfish and we all struggle with selfishness. The, the number one temptation that we face is prioritizing ourselves over others. And, and I bet when we look at the core of a lot of sin, it comes down to serving ourselves instead of serving the ways of Jesus. Like, if we talk about selfishness, it's almost a symptom sin of a deeper sin that's pride. The pride being that I carry a certain amount of importance and so I should serve myself or I should be served or I should be recognized as being that important. And since we have this pride, where we fail is in the area of humility. No one can say, I am awesome at humility. Right? Because as soon as you say that, Right? No longer humble. Uh, you, you could win the prize in Sunday school for most humble, but if you put the badge on, you lose. <laughs> right? Uh, so all of us, when we talk about our humility, it's not something we have. It's something that we're working on. It's something that we want to be more humble. We want to be, um, like, we don't want to be proud. We don't want, that's not a core trait. Now, in our culture, uh, it's, it's a weird thing, but in our culture, it's, it's kind of turned into this thing where you should be, like, being proud is seen as a good thing. Um, now, I'm not American, so I'm going to slam your country for a second. Uh, I'm from Canada, and I pay a lot of money to live here. But uh, I have to renew my green card this year, so if you have a problem, just write Obama, and, and he'll probably reject me. But uh, the... the uh, uh, we're going to cut that out of the recording, but... <laughs> Because because I'm worried they look me up online, but um, we have songs about how proud we are of our country. You know, we're proud of our teams. We're proud of our kids. We're proud of ourselves, right? And sometimes uh, that pride, like that pride, slips into sin really, really easily. Sin being when we see something as having more value than Jesus, having more value than the ways of God, having more value than the gospel. I'm not saying you shouldn't feel pride for your country. Go ahead and feel all the pride you want. I'm saying the Bible talks about this. And if you just follow things uncritically, if you just say, this part of my life, the Bible's not going to speak to that, then you're struggling with a pride issue that is sinful. 
Let me read you this verse. This verse appears in James 4, 6. It also appears in 1 Peter 5. And I'm gonna, I think I'm going to put it on the screen here. This is James 4, 6. Uh, but he gives more grace than he is Jesus or God. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. So when you say, I'm so proud of this, I'm proud of what I've done, what God's stance is in opposition to that. I mean, dang, right? Like, if you don't regularly read the Bible and you just arrived here today, you think I'm some kind of communist, right? And I'm from Canada, so... <laughs> there is this kind of... Like, this verse, and, and I don't know what we... We either need to do some kind of theological gymnastics and say, well, the original word proud is whatever it is in the original language. And what God really meant was, God opposes enemies of America but gives grace to America, <laughs> right? Like what happens if we start putting together songs about our humility instead of putting together songs about our pride? I don't even know what that would look like. All I'm saying is, if we're looking at ourselves honestly, then selfishness has to be something that we recognize in ourselves. And that selfishness comes from a root of pride. And pride stands in opposition to God. And one preacher says, God has two ways of doing things. Humility or humiliation. You either submit yourself in humility, or God will submit you, and you'll experience humiliation. People who are already humble, it's pretty hard to humiliate them. They just assume that they aren't that great. And so when you tell them they aren't that great, and I mean this in a healthy way, not a degrading way, they will agree with you. They will say, yeah, I'm still on this journey. I'm trying to figure this thing out. When you say my life's a mess, yeah, try being me. I have to live with this every day. <laughs> Marriage between two selfish people becomes cold. It becomes functional, right? Like it works because you figured out how to get what you want out of this. Marriage between, if one person is a servant lover and one person is a selfish lover, then that marriage becomes, at worst, abusive, at best, depressing. Because you've got one person being taken advantage of and one person enjoying taking advantage of. A marriage, though, between two servant-hearted lovers becomes increasingly united, it becomes increasingly satisfi satisfying. Yet Jesus is the only example of an unselfish person that we can point to. Like, I won't give examples out of my life on how unselfish I am, because if there's a dude that self suffers from selfishness, he's wearing the microphone today. Alright? If you talk to me when I'm hungry, I'm selfish. And not just about getting my food, about everything. If you talk to me when I'm angry, and when I'm tired, when I'm lonely, right? We've talked about this. If I'm tired, I'm selfish. I'm sure you're a nice person, but I want what I want, right? When we talk about this, it's not like, hey, I've, here's something I've figured out, and I want to share with you the three keys to humility. This is something that when my wife and I went through this book, Heather and I went through this in the fall, we watched all the DVDs in the fall, these, these are tough 
areas. And it's a tough thing to admit. Like some of you, when we start talking about being selfish and being servants, you are so glad that your spouse is here today. <laughs> right? Because they really need to hear this. <laughs> you need to know that that is what selfishness sounds like. That is what pride sounds like. The only example of unselfishness the only person who doesn't need to actually spend some time in prayer about their pride and about their selfishness is Jesus himself. In Mark 10.45 uh, it says this. These are just, I know these are just example verses. Um, but this is what it says. For the Son of Man, for even the Son of Man, which is how Jesus referred to himself, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for, ma- for many. When Jesus came to earth... His intention was to serve. It is the most radical role of rever- Like, God, in human form, comes to earth so that he can serve sinners. Jesus comes to earth so that he can serve people who refuse to recognize that he is God. Jesus comes to earth and chooses to give up his seat at the right hand of God, his power and authority in the heavenly realm to live on earth to serve you, to serve me. When a person says, I'm, I'm, I'm really humble, you've got to compare yourself maybe to the example that Jesus gives. If you think, hey, this is an area I'm really good at. Today's sermon, I'll probably just get, you know, I don't really need to listen because I kind of get this already. Then you better, like, you better have a tattoo that says, my name is Jesus. Right? And, like, your mom better be Mary and your dad better be God. Because I know that's kind of a common name these days. (laughs) But there there isn't this kind of understanding that Jesus came to be worshipped. Jesus was worshipped, but he didn't show up on earth with an entourage or with a stage. He showed up on earth as a servant. And his whole goal and his whole purpose in life was for your benefit. So when we look at our lives, our whole life, our outlook on life is to be served, right? This is what we spend our money on. And we spend our money on what our heart is passionate about. Whatever you spend your money on, that's what you care about. It's just true. We spend our money on being served. Many of you are going to go out for lunch after, and you're going to pay more than the food is worth, so that someone will bring it to you. And someone will, this is probably worth it, do the dishes. Right? Because you want to be served. You're going to go away on a vacation, and the whole idea of vacation is to be served. I'm going to spend a lot of money so that people can do things for me. This is what we spend our money on. If something goes wrong with a service that you pay for, you call them and you're mad at them. You're mad at them because you weren't served the way that you think that you deserve to be served because you paid your hard-earned money for that thing. You're proud of yourself. You deserve to be served. Do you see that? Our whole outlook, like this is our lives, is all about being served. 
And it, it, that's not unusual. It feels good. This is why I appreciate Jesus. He came to serve me. This is why I like people who serve me. It, it's just true. People like me if I serve them. So when we have this whole outlook on life of serving, of being served, it is only natural that we struggle with selfishness. If you're single here today, and you have a list, like you have a list of the things that you want in your spouse, I promise that's a serve me list. I want a spouse who's this. I want a spouse who's this. And I want a spouse who's this. You have a list, right? And if you're single, you have this list of ways that you can be served in marriage. It might be a good idea to write that down so you can save the person you're going to get married to. Show them that list on like date number two. Right? And that way there won't be a date number three. <laughs> there really is. Like, if you want to be in a servant-servant marriage then maybe you need a new list of ways that you want to serve your spouse. Do you see that? I want to be married to someone so that I have someone that I can dedicate my life to, not so that someone dedicates their life to me. You don't need a spouse as quick as you need a whole new outlook on what marriage is. Listen, this is 1 Corinthians 7. I didn't put this on the screen, and I want to read it. Um, <laughs> again, if you've never read the Bible before, um, this will probably be offensive. 1 Corinthians 7 is a guy named Paul writing to some new Christians who lived in the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth made Las Vegas look like uh, Albany. <laughs> all right? It made it look tame, the kind of place you want to raise your kids. All right? Um, the city of Corinth had um, two harbors and sailors would land in one and, wa- and it was better to like carry your goods and there was a whole slave trade and economy who would carry goods across the land to another ship it was faster and cheaper than sailing around the peninsula and the, so the city of Corinth had tons of transient like people in and out and then it had up on the hill a huge uh, temple one of the larger temples in their culture, uh, which uh, you would worship the god on that hill through ritual prostitution. And in the evening, prostitutes from that temple would come down and people would attend church uh, and for that god through engaging with sex acts, all right? Here's a culture that's a little bit confused about what sex is and what sex is for. And so when the Christians start getting married, they have a little bit of baggage because of what they were taught in their Changing Me class in third grade, you know? Which is too early, but it was Corinth, alright? Now concerning, this is chapter 7, now concerning the matters about what you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's in quotes. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. Alright, like this is the sermon that these people needed. Alright, you can imagine what church was like. Hey church, this week we're going to talk about you should only have your own wife. Right? The husband should give his wife, give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. 
Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's an interesting thing that Paul, who writes this letter to the Corinth, says here's what Christian marriage looks like. First of all, everyone gets their own wife or their own husband. We'll start with the basic stuff. Then, he actually says in a much more biblical way, you should have sex with each other, with your own wife and your own husband. You should have sex with each other on a regular basis. Christians, if you want to have a good Christian marriage, and you can write this down if you want, good Christian marriages have sex on a regular basis. Five things you didn't think you'd hear at church this morning. <laughs> According to the scripture, when you're married, this is something that should be happening. Now, um, if you're reading along in the book, or you'll watch, if you're in a life group, you'll watch on the DVD, and they actually say, this is how often you should be having sex. Everybody wonders that, right? It's kind of a weird thing. You're like, how often should we be doing this? And usually, you have two different answers, right? <laughs> And, and then these answers change according to how much, like if your kids are in public school, they're sick on a regular basis. Uh, you know, those answers change according to how much vomit you're cleaning up at night. Um, but there is this, everybody's wondering. Uh, and you can look that stuff up. What I think is unhealthy, and I'll say this because if you watch the DVD, what's unhealthy is thinking, I want a normal marriage, right? Or I want an average marriage. I hope that's not your goal. Because in reality, and you can, there's research that'll show this, you can, well you shouldn't Google this because of what'll show up, but you can go to the library and look in an old school book and, and find this research and, and you'll be able to see like sexual behavior changes over time. Uh, people who are newly married have a higher frequency of sex than people who've been married for an extended period of time, meaning more than six months. And the research actually says that. <laughs> Alright? And so this is kind of a life thing, and so we're not going to talk about, and I'm not going to preach, because the Bible doesn't say, Jesus never said, and Paul never said, he says, the wife's body doesn't belong to the wife, the husband's body doesn't belong to the husband. You can be selfish, or you can be a servant. So when we're talking about being a selfish lover... Here's what I want to talk about. Here's what a selfish lover looks like, alright? Like, here's the, how we end up here. When you rarely have sex. If there's repeated denial of advances, you can shame and humiliate your partner to where they eventually stop. If there's no time or no effort put into this area of your life, if you just rush, 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 or you don't think about it, uh, and this might shock you, um, but men and women are a little bit different when it comes to uh, sex in marriage. Uh, men will generally look at, I want to be close, like sex is a, is a vehicle to closeness. And for women, closeness is a vehicle to sex. In general. So if you're looking at this, you're set up for frustration. Like we should be close so that we can enjoy our marriage in a sexual way and we should have sex so that we can be close and you're either in a really good cycle or you get, fall off the tracks and you end up in a really bad cycle 
And when you only have, number three, when you only have sex, when you're both in the mood. Like, let's wait till we both are in the mood. Like, if you're married, are you ever thinking the same thing about anything ever? Right? Other than, get a babysitter, let's get out of here. Right? <laughs> that is, might be the only thing that married people consistently agree on. If you wait till you're both in the mood, that's not going to happen. If there's only ever one person who's, who's advancing, one person who's engaging, it's going to be discouraging. If we attempt to make ourselves undesirable, if you decide I'm no longer going to make myself look appealing, um, and, and I don't mean this in like a shallow way, but it, it's not that hard to wear pants around your house. I'm talking to the guys and some girls. All right? It's not, that, it's not that hard to comb your hair. Sometimes you need to get a haircut. All right? Like it's a good $10 to spend. Okay? Um, there's avoidance patterns that happen uh, if we avoid going to bed at the same time. If I fall asleep on the couch watching reruns of some stupid show, I can fall into that selfishness. I'm, if, if you make sex a prize, if you complete your honey-do list. <laughs> right? <laughs> that is how I get whatever I want, so you know. Like, if I'm hungry, I'm like, hey, bacon. All right. <laughs> and in my mind, this works. In reality, it does not. But if you make it a prize, it turns into like a... It turns into a really weird form, and like it almost looks like prostitution. Like if you do this, if you pay this price, then I'll reward you with a sexual favors. If, if your bedroom is a zoo, like I mean an actual zoo, like animals sleep in your bed, right? If children are sleeping in your bed, that's, that's not going to crank the heat up, alright? That's an unhealthy pattern for your sex life. Uh, sometimes... We've talked about couples getting growing cold and living parallel lives. If you're living parallel lives, there's selfishness there. There's I. This works as long as we just stay apart. Maybe even maybe in separate bedrooms or separate closets and master bed like bathrooms. If we stay apart, then your sex life is going to struggle. So what causes? Like why do we fall into this? Because I would bet in our life. There's this rhythm, right? If selfishness is something that we all struggle with, then these things I'm talking about are things that we all experience. This isn't a thing that we're talking about and the people sitting in the robe in front of you or the row behind you probably really need... It's something that all of us experience because it's selfishness in it, if you're married. Sometimes, though, I want to talk about some of the reasons. Because I... I don't want to just deal with symptoms. I want to deal with what's actually happening. Sometimes you go through difficult seasons in life, like an illness, or an extreme tragedy, or an injury, right? Those kinds of things can affect your intimacy in the bedroom. That's, that's real. That's not a negative thing. That's a real thing. But that's something that you need to be aware of. Sometimes someone has sin. If you have sin and you're hiding it, sin by definition destroys your relationship with God. Sin against our spouse by definition hinders our relationship with our spouse. So if you're addicted to porn 
you're destroying your intimacy in your marriage. It's not something that's not affecting anyone. It's a sin against your spouse because you're setting up a different standard of beauty. Your spouse is no longer your standard of beauty. A Photoshop picture is. If you have sin that's committed against you, and this is real, victims of abuse and victims of assault, it is, it is radically difficult uh, to be, be whole and be healed after those kinds of experiences. And that will affect your intimacy with your spouse. I've seen couples who, someone who's been victimized doesn't deal with it on their own and then their spouse deals with it their entire marriage. And that spouse wants to help but until we, um, until we walk through the process, which it is so much easier to say than to just do. I want, you to, I want you to understand that. This is a real thing that happens. But until we walk through that process, it doesn't just go away. Sometimes people have poor choices in sharing. Like if you're talking about your sex life with people you're not married to more than the person you are married to, it's not going to get better. And I know it's like the most awkward thing, right? Like, I'm going to go home and say, now, with your spouse in the car, turn the music up in the back so the kids can't hear. Like, it, it's, a, it's almost like this thing that we want to do, but we certainly don't want to talk about it. Like, talking about it is more intimate than actually performing sex. Sometimes exhaustion. Like, you might be, like, actually, physically exhausted. If you have multiple children who don't use a toilet, then you might be extremely tired. If kids are touching you all day long and then that man comes home and wants to touch you, right? If you've been working 40, 50, 60, 70 hours of overtime and then that woman wants to touch you, not as funny, but because you don't believe me. <laughs> All the men are like, well, oh, well, what? <laughs> but if you are exhausted, you might actually need to look at your life. Again, because these go through seasons, right? If, if I was married and then I went to school more after that, and during exam times, end of the semester, you're not sleeping, you know, there's, you're tired, you're still working, right? Uh, sometimes, Couples, and this is a real thing, like physiologically there's a lack of pleasure. Sometimes the sex and the sexual acts can actually be painful and not pleasurable. And it is, uh, I mean, it, it might be a bit embarrassing, but it would be a good idea to actually talk to your medical doctor. Uh, to actually have that conversation. And they can, especially uh, if they're able to help you, maybe with some non-pornographic resources. There's Christian resources out there, Christian books and things like that that can help you understand um, the way that it works or the, way that the, or the reasons that you're experiencing uh, a lack of pleasure. Sometimes insecurity happens. Like if you constantly degrade or deride your spouse or criticize your spouse, they probably are feeling significant insecurity in you. This is why we talked about a couple weeks ago, if you have negative nicknames for each other, 
And then you say, well, there's, some, there's something wrong in our marriage. Well, maybe it's because you're calling each other names all the time that, you, that aren't actually building you up. Sometimes there's boredom in a marriage. Like, you have sex the same time, the same way, on the same schedule. Like, it, like you can program it in your phone. Ding! Hey! Well, pause the TV. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, like there's, you can get into this where you start to act in a selfish way because you're in this rut and you don't know what to do to get out of that rut. Right? And it's not just, oh, we need to, oh, oh, like, it's not just, hey, let's change something. It's actually like, this is a part of your marriage that requires intentional thought and intentional action. So when you're married, these are conversations that you should be having. You should know, when I started, um, I do marriages sometimes. Like, I mean, I, I stand at the front and nobody notices me. Um, but I, I say a lot of stuff and people say, you own a suit? Yes, I do. Uh, right? And uh, for a while, like, I have this premarital counseling book that I don't do a lot of marriages because I have an extensive premarital counseling. Um, I just figure that it, it's a good idea to front load that investment. Uh, there was a chapter, the last chapter is on sex, and I used to say, you'll probably figure that thing out. Um, and so just read that chapter on your own. And we don't do that anymore. Because I think that a lot of our education in the area of sex isn't coming from the Bible. It's coming from culture. It's coming from what we think. Where we're trying to look at some research or talk to our buddies and say, hey, uh, what should happen? What's this like? Because there's this kind of awkwardness. If we want to talk about the issues that we have in our marriage, uh, and this is, if you're a selfish lover in the bedroom, you're probably a selfish lover out of the bedroom. If you suffer, if you struggle with pride, which we all do, then the level of your pride is probably the same through your life. It's not like you're humble over here and you're not humble over there. It's you're proud and you're so proud you're faking it. And you think that people can't tell. I want to read you this scripture from Philippians. It talks about Jesus' humility. Uh, Philippians uh, excuse me, this, it's Philippians 2, it's not 4 if you're writing that down. But Philippians 2, 3 says this, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of vain conceit. If there's like one trick to having a servant lover with a servant lover marriage it's to do nothing out of selfish ambition in humility consider your partner more significant than you are on our best days we're successful at this 
on our worst days, we make a mockery of this verse, don't we? Uh, My wife is more significant than me. But when I'm hungry, that significance drops off. When I'm angry, when I'm tired, when I'm selfish. So if we have humility, we're able to see that our partner is more significant. We don't only look to our own interests, but to the interests of others. There are times when the best thing you can do for your spouse isn't the best thing for you. When the thing that you can give to your spouse isn't the thing that you want. That might mean like alone time. Like I just want alone time. I just need some space. I need to turn on the Xbox and shoot some terrorists. Right? This should be rare. Alright? Like if that's a regular thing, you need to shut that thing off. <laughs> but you're not 10 years old anymore. Uh, but there is this that's true (laughs) some of you need to write that down I'm not 10 alright when you but maybe your spouse needs you to be close to her or close to him maybe you want to be close like you're like I've had a long stressful day I need to cuddle on the couch and see where that goes and your spouse has had a long stressful day and just needs some alone time to process that thing to process what's going on inside of them from their stress. Understanding that what they need is more significant than what you need creates a servant marriage. And you know why it's beautiful? Because in a marriage between two servants, both are looking for the benefit of the other. When you're in a marriage that is the way that the Bible is designed for marriage to work, You no longer have to worry about your own needs because there's another human being who's decided their sole purpose in life is to serve God by meeting your needs. And so I don't have to worry about getting what I want because there's another person that God has assigned that responsibility to. And in a healthy, on a good day, marriage, this is what it looks like. Before you have to go into this thing with selfish ambition, there's someone who's there looking for you. This is why we love each other. This is why we want this kind of marriage. But listen to this. This is verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is harsh, but this is what this means. Having this mind, being able to think this way, is available in Christ Jesus. This means, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, then what I'm talking about is biblically impossible for you. This is why meeting Jesus, putting your full faith and trust in Jesus, following Him, what we call being a Christian, and I know you might have a lot of baggage with that word, but being a disciple of Jesus... Jesus used the word being born again, and I know in our culture that means weird stuff now, but Jesus talks about this. If you're not a Christian, then the Bible says this isn't possible for you. So if you don't want to be a Christian, cross out this part if you've been taking notes. Because the Bible actually says this will be impossible for you. Because everyone is selfish. 
Because everyone has pride except for Jesus. And the only way is not to say, I'm going to work on being more humble. The only way is the renewal of your mind in Christ Jesus. The Bible talks about putting off the old man and putting on the new man. The Bible talks about the renewing of your heart. The Bible talks about God taking your heart of stone out and replacing it with a soft heart of flesh. If you don't follow Jesus, if you aren't, and I don't mean a cultural Christian like you're a Christian because you live in America and vote for the party that you think is Christian. I mean, if you don't have salvation in Jesus, then what we're talking about, like then this part doesn't apply to you. And I'm not saying you have to do something. I'm just saying you're fooling yourself if you think you can have this kind of marriage outside of Jesus. It's only possible because Jesus is the only one who is good. The only one who is truly unselfish. Who is truly a servant all the way through. Jesus who is God actually does not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. Jesus like you, you know when you started breathing this morning? You know when you woke up and you were like, oh good, I'm alive for another day? That was Jesus' decision. I know you think it was yours because you ate healthy or you exercised or something crazy. But we all know people. We all know that life is the most fragile thing in the world. And that God is the only one who has control over those kinds of things. When we're talking about the power of God, it's immense. And yet that power of God decides to become nothing in order to serve you. Now for some of you, serving is just like the most natural thing in the world. Like this whole sermon, you've been shocked. You're like, you mean there are people who aren't serving? Like, there are people who don't have that servant heart. Like, some of you, that's just like your gift. Like, you're shocked because you've been so busy serving, you haven't noticed that there's some people who just sit around and and love to be served. Right? Some of you, if you're married to someone with just a natural servant heart, they just get this. This is just normal for them. Like, it's, it's not just natural, it's like supernatural. It's like, this is a gift that they have. This is why I'm saying they don't have it. All right? But just because you don't have this gift, that doesn't give you like an excuse. Like you don't get to say, oh, you know, I'm not good at that, so I'm not going to, like, Jesus is talking to the people who are good at that. No, it doesn't, if you read the context, he's not talking about that. Just because it's not natural gifting, just because you're more selfish than a normal person, doesn't mean you get an excuse. Well, God made me selfish. So I think he wants me to be selfish. Right? You did a personality test and it came out that you're a selfish person and so God must love you for being selfish. No. <laughs> you don't get to make excuses like that. And there's a couple things that, that sometimes we think is serving our spouse but it's not. Like if you're, uh, sometimes you serve your kids and you think you're serving your spouse. You drive them to every practice. You're at every game. You coach every team. You're yelling at every referee. And you think, I'm showing my spouse that I serve him or her. 
That's not serving your spouse. That's serving your kids or your family. Sometimes you can trick yourself into serving, like if you have a family, especially if you work together or you have a family business. Heather and I work for the same organization. (laughs) And we've gone through periods in our lives when we go out for a date and all we talk about is that church. (laughs) Sometimes it's healthy to not talk about work. To not talk about the stress. And if you work together, sometimes you can think, well, we have this family business or you both work for the same company and we work and work and work and work and we're serving each other. Especially if it's like a small business that you own or something like that. That's not serving each other. That's serving the business. Sometimes you volunteer in the same ministry at church or in the community. And you think, well, we both like, we both serve in the children's ministry and we're, that's not serving each other. That's serving a ministry. None of those things can become substitutes, but they're easy substitutes and they're tricky substitutes. When it comes down to serving your spouse, it's not just a bedroom issue. And this shouldn't surprise you. We talked about sex last week and we're going to talk about sex next week. You should know that sex in marriage isn't this isolated thing. But it has to do with everything together. You don't get to say, this part of my marriage, this part of my marriage, this part of my marriage. Or if you're single, this part of my life, this part of my life. If you're selfish, you're selfish across the board. And usually, in a marriage, if there's problems in your sex life, they're symptomatic of other problems. Provided it's not from like assault or something that's horrible that's happened to you. But usually, if you're struggling with intimacy... It's because you're struggling with that same area through your whole marriage. And those struggles usually come from selfishness. Which always comes from pride. And so because we're so proud, we act selfishly. We stop serving. And we destroy intimacy in our marriages. And you sit down and you worry about this symptom that's four layers deep instead of realizing I struggle with selfishness and pride. If you were to be honest and you set up like some kind of a weird number line and you had like selfish and proud over here and humble and being a servant over here imagine yourself on that number line. Imagine your range. Like on my good days I'm here and on my bad days I'm over here so I'm somewhere in here and then try to imagine where your spouse would actually grade you and maybe you're humble enough to ask them and say what do you think I'm like you might not want to do that if you don't want to grow and change if you're still sitting there going, I'm so glad my spouse heard this sermon today. You might not want to try that. Because honesty is a really, really good place to begin in marriage. <laughs> honesty about things that are actually really difficult. Because when you start admitting you're not, you know, as perfect as you thought you were, then you start being able to grow into a more humble version of yourself 
who's actually able to admit that I'm not perfect. My pride is a front. I'm selfish. And these are things that I've carried into this marriage and that my spouse is paying for. And what needs to pay for those things is the blood of Jesus that forgives sins and then I follow him in repentance and serve my spouse. If you're single, you are stinking selfish. It's just true. And honestly, it's because like you are your life. For better or worse, no matter how you feel about that, you struggle with selfishness. If you're married, you are stinking selfish. No matter uh, like how great your marriage is or the struggles that your marriage is going through, this is a real thing that we struggle with. And if we talk about the sex part of our marriages, it's where this problem is revealed the easiest. And so I want to pray together and we're actually going to repent of our selfishness together. We're going to apologize to God. Some of us, after we're done praying, we're going to sing and people around you won't be able to hear, but some of you maybe need to apologize to the person you're holding hands with. Maybe you should hold hands and then apologize. (laughs) Because you're so selfish you don't want to hold hands, right? (laughs) But there is this kind of admitting that we are where we are that allows us to be honest with ourselves, and then allows us to be honest with each other which actually improves not just our married sex life but actually our whole lives single, married, no matter what it's going to reveal itself most glaringly in a marriage but selfishness is selfishness you're selfish I'm way more selfish than you And so we need to pray, we need to repent, and we need to move forward. Let's stand and pray together. Jesus, our God, we stand before you. No matter where we are today, some of us, Lord, might not ever pray. Some of us might not know you, might not self-identify as Christians. Some of us may have been Christians for decades. Some of us may have been married for decades. In all of that, we confess our selfishness. Every single last one of us, no matter where we are, we confess that. It's a part of us that we don't actually like. And it's a part of us that we don't actually like to have to admit. Because we really like to think of ourselves as on the good end of things. I'm a, I'm a good husband, or I'm a good wife or I'm a good Christian, or I'm a good person. And yet when we look at the scripture, we see that Jesus, you are good. You are humble. You are a servant. And while we are constantly building ourselves up, thinking that we can become some kind of God, you did not think equality with God was something that can be grasped. Or that should be grasped. You decided to make yourself nothing and come as a servant and give your life as a ransom for many. So Lord, we follow you in repentance. We ask that you would lead us to forgiveness, 
in you and allow us to live in the freedom of you. Help us to move in areas of servants. For those of us who are single, may we know our selfishness. It may not reveal itself as easily because, because we don't have that spouse accountability or that spouse relationship. But allow us reveal those things to our hearts. Convict us in your word so that we can grow in you. Those who are married might need to have conversations and I pray that you would extend grace in these marriages and that they can admit to selfishness and that they can move forward from this. Jesus, we pray your grace on our lives. We really do. Even though we're selfish, we realize that we follow a God who makes us whole. We follow a God who, in Christ Jesus, it is possible to have a marriage that is healthy, that is growing, that is gospel-centered, and following you. And so while it is depressing, the level of pride and selfishness that we feel, we thank you for the hope that is in Christ Jesus. The renewal of our minds, of our hearts, the putting off of that old, nasty, selfish stuff, and the putting on of a renewed self in the image of Christ. God, may you be blessed, because we have certainly been blessed by your service to us. In your name we pray. Amen.